This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 198 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast, and my Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. So, we had some sad news for one of my 72 Tops guys this past weekend. Paul Silas passed away at the age of 79. And you've probably seen some of the tributes by now. He was a 16-year NBA veteran. He won three titles, two with the Celtics, one with the Sonics. He was a two-time All-Star. And everyone that knew him talks about how great a guy he was off the court as well. Now, I didn't know Mr. Silas personally, but I did have one brief but memorable interaction with him when he was coach of the Charlotte Bobcats. And I figure now's an appropriate time to share that with you. So... This was all the way back in March of 2012, and for context, his 2011-2012 Bobcats team finished the season with the lowest winning percentage in NBA history. And I had a friend that had season tickets, and before the game, my friend was notified that they were going to take him down to the player tunnel after the game for autographs, and he was allowed to bring one person with him. So he invited me to join him, and I was pretty excited about the opportunity. And most of the people, and remember, this was 2012, Most of the people that were there were really excited about meeting Kimba Walker. Well, I'd already gotten his autograph at um, a Bobcats practice event or something by this point, so I was excited about meeting Paul Silas. The reason was because I wanted to get his 72 top sign. You guys know I I talked about it, how I chased that set for a while, and um, coaches were not always the easiest people to access in the arena. It's not that they weren't willing to sign, it's just you really couldn't get to them, whereas the players were always running on and off the court for warm-ups. So this opportunity seemed like it was going to be a sure shot. That is, until Coach Silas was ejected for arguing a call in the second quarter. I'm watching this from the stands thinking, well, you know, selfishly, there goes my chance of meeting Paul Silas. I'd been looking forward to this for a little bit now. So Sometime in the second half, we had to leave our seats so we could make our way to the player tunnel for the post-game meet and greet, and they ushered us down in some sort of freight elevator where we waited anxiously for players to exit from the locker room. In the meantime, about 20 yards away, Michael Jordan casually passed by with his little cluster of security. No matter how hard I tried in the months that followed, that was unfortunately the closest I ever got to his airness. But I didn't go into that evening thinking I'd have a chance at him anyway. As I mentioned earlier, my sights were set on Coach Silas, who, thanks to his ejection, had already had plenty of time in the locker room to mull things over. Well, eventually he emerged with a big smile on his face. He signed autographs for all of us, including my 72 tops. He took pictures, and he seemed like he was in a great mood, all things considered. 
and as he worked his way down the line, someone eventually worked up the nerve to ask him, Hey coach, what'd you say to the ref that got you tossed from the game tonight? He stopped and laughed. Without missing a step, he boldly proclaimed, Oh, well, I called him an asshole. It was certainly a night that I'll never forget, so rest in peace, Coach Silas. All right, before I move into today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hey, this is Bob Nettleke, former Indiana Pacer. Played on a few championship teams, had a lot of fun. You know, I'm listening to the Wax Museum Podcast, one of the best there is. Okay, so as usual, I pulled about 20 questions for this edition of the Listener Mailbag. I've got a lot to cover today, so I'm going to go ahead and jump right in with question number one, which comes from Jason, aka Small Town Cards, who asks, what Taco Bell product best parallels or represents your collection? Now, they don't have this at the moment, but I would say it has to be the Grilled Cheese Burrito Deluxe Box. And the reason being, it's headlined by the Grilled Cheese Burrito, a premium item that I overpaid for, but... I really like, so I could say that about a number of items in my collection. It comes with a medium Mountain Dew, which I like, but I should have paid the small premium for the large. Similarly, I've got some cards that in hindsight, you know, I've skimped out on and I wish I had, you know, saved for the one with a nicer patch or whatever. Um, The box also has another solid Taco Bell staple in the Chalupa Supreme. Likewise, I've got some cards that are, you know, solid, but not super rare. And then the box has some enjoyable but predictable filler to close things out um, with the taco and the nachos and cheese. That would be like my refractor binders. You fall back on that kind of stuff when nothing else is speaking to you in the moment. And then it comes with a million of those brown napkins, uh, a symbolic gesture, some would say. And I know you're probably thinking certain things when I say that, but we're going to say that they represent all of the loose team bags at my house instead. Next question, Hoops Cards and More 91 ask, what's the most expensive and or rare card you pulled from a pack? Outside of printing plates, I've only pulled one true one of one, and I believe that was a Tommy Mendoza Superfractor in 2007 Bowman Chrome, so that was a baseball card for those of you that don't know. And I opened the box in my local shop, this would have been when I was in high school, and I was so excited. So I I took the card, you know, I was sitting at a table on the side. I took the card up to the shop owners, you know, tried to show it off to them, tried to, you know, see if they would share my excitement, and they completely no-sold it. They just could not have cared less, which seemed kind of strange to me, but then again, they're not in business now, so imagine that. Although, um, yeah, I think there was some other legal stuff going on too. But anyway, um, a couple other nice cards I pulled in the 2000s. I pulled a Derek Jeter jersey auto out of an SPX product. And I pulled a Chris Paul gold rookie refractor out of 2005 Topps Chrome. All of those cards are long gone. I don't rip much anymore and definitely not hobby stuff. So I haven't pulled much in recent years other than a LeBron status pursuit parallel. And you might even remember me talking about that one on this show. Perimeter Collectibles ask, what responsibilities should hobby veterans have to newer participants? 
Now, this is all assuming that hobby veterans want to help grow the hobby, which is not always the case, but I think they need to be open and honest. I think there should be safe spaces for people to make mistakes. And when I say that, I don't mean ethics-related mistakes. People still need to be held accountable for bad ethics, regardless if they're new to the hobby or not. That's something you should learn prior to joining the hobby. Most of all, I think hobby veterans need to be accessible. Don't push your advice on anyone, but make it clear that you're available if someone needs help. In fact, a great example of that came at the end of last week's episode where Josh sent out an open invite for anyone that might need help in the near future. So once again, kudos to Josh. And speaking of Josh, and speaking of last week's episode, New York City Hoops Collector wrote, Enjoyed the latest pod with Mitten State Collector. During the conversation, it sounded like you wanted to disagree with Josh's contention that Ben Wallace should have won the 04 Defensive Player of the Year over Ron Artest. Please expound on that sentiment. You're going to get me in trouble here, but since you ask, and I, I know Josh has already got the advanced metrics and, and the defensive efficiency ratings pulled up. Uh, I know he saw this question when you ask it, but I alluded to this in our conversation and I'm not sure that that's going to account for the last 22 games of the season where Rasheed Wallace was helping him. You know, for the record, she'd averaged two blocks per game in that short stretch. I think it's also worth mentioning that basketball in the early 2000s was a much different game than what you see today. On the defensive end, there wasn't a lot of switching on screens where now everyone does that. You really had to have a combination of lateral quickness and strength to defend on the perimeter. Um, which I, you know, I see perimeter defense as as tougher to play than interior defense. And Ron had that. And in my mind, that made him a lot more versatile than um, someone in the post. And while I'm not going to say he would shut down the centers of the era, I feel pretty confident in saying he could defend spots one through five if needed. Now, I've seen some people say Ron was a better overall player in that time frame, and Ben was more of a specialist. Specialist is kind of a nice way of saying someone was one-dimensional, but there's probably some truth to that overall. I suppose the argument could really go either way, but I think defending on the perimeter, like I said, was way more difficult, and Ron was the best. And it's a regular season award, and you know his team won 61 games that year. So um, I, I think it is reasonable for him to have been chosen over Ben Wallace. I can justify that. I think the stats, I think the context can justify that as well. And I'm trying not to say that just because I collect Ron Artest. Okay, Green Stiller asks, did you have any other names you debated for the show before selecting Wax Museum Podcast? This was actually something I thought about a lot back in March of 2019, so much so that I created a blowout thread asking for suggestions. I knew I wanted to have something related to Wax. I was kind of upset that I couldn't name it Wax Poetic, uh, but there was already a card shop in Indy with the same name. So I toyed around with other Wax-themed ideas like Wax Lyrical or Wax Eloquent. I also mentioned the name Off Center, which I think at least one or two shows have probably used since then. But once a Wax Museum idea came to me, I felt pretty good about it, though. And I think that sounds way better than Wax Poetic, and it really encompasses what I set out to accomplish with this show. Um, in a related matter, slangandrocks.pc asks, Have you ever been to a Wax Museum? If you do go in the future, try doing a podcast on location. The short answer is no, I haven't. My parents never took me to one when I was a kid, and I can't imagine spending money to visit one now, and that's nothing against you if you do. It's just not my thing. I do, however, still get tagged in them on Instagram occasionally, though, somehow, 
So um, I've seen my fair share of wax figures over time, but no, I have not been to one myself. All right, Zach's Vintage Cards wrote, History on gum and basketball packs, did that ever happen? Yes, in fact, it started out as the norm. So I dug around a little bit, and I'm going to name all the mainstream sets I know of that came with gum. And then if you're listening and I missed one, and remember, these are just mainstream sets, but please, please, please let me know. So every mainstream set from 48 to 81 had gum in it. So that's 48 Bowman, 57 Tops, 61 Fleer, and then all the top sets from 69 to 81. Now from 1982 to 1986, the only licensed manufacturer for NBA cards was the Star Company, and I've never seen a Star Team bag with a stick of gum in it, which makes sense because these other companies that we're talking about, like Fleer and Tops, those were candy companies. Uh, the Star Company, though, was not. So when Fleer picked things back up again in 1986, they had gum in packs, and that continued until 1988. From there, it seems to be hit or miss. I found some Tops packs from 93 through 95 that had gum in them. It wasn't the norm, though. I've noticed it was some of the jumbo packs, but not all of them, so I don't know where they were distributed. Um, Now, I also don't know if the pieces were wrapped in plastic or not. Prior to that, they definitely were not. Uh, And then everything else after this was, so it just depends. If, If these were as well, then this is kind of the dividing line. If not, then I think it would have been 2000 and 2001 Topps Heritage, which had gum. And then a couple years later, all three of the bazooka releases, which would be 2003, 2004, and 2005, included a stick of gum in every pack. So that's the last one that I know of, which would be 2005 Bazooka. And even though Fanatics will be making Topps branded cards in the future, I don't think we'll be seeing any more gum in packs, seeing as they did not purchase the gift card and candy portion of the business. So I think gum in packs is going to remain a thing of the past. Benny Collects asks, what's the favorite oddball card in your collection and why? And I don't know how confident I feel about this answer because when I first read it, there wasn't a card that immediately came to mind. And at first I thought about the word oddball as a set that wasn't as mainstream. In that case, I'd probably say the Cons Wieners cards. But when you say oddball card, I'm thinking more about weird cards in general. Cards with weird die cuts or weird relics, stuff like that. So I'm going to go with one that I talked a little bit about before, but that's a card from 2006-2000 Finest. It's one that features a big swatch of Adam Morrison's Draft Knight suit. And we've seen other Draft Knight relics before, but not a suit. And I have the version numbered to $4.99. You can grab those for under $10. There's also an autographed version numbered to $50, which I'd still like to add one of those, but it doesn't show up often. JGP3 underscore cards asks, Do you have an exit plan at all for when you might sell the collection? He said, at some point in the future, I'll have to do it or at least leave information to my wife on what the collection's worth. Not a fun topic, but something I think about. And I should have a good answer for this, but the honest truth is I've ignored any of these thoughts for the time being. I know it's something I should be thinking about, but no, I have not come up with any sort of plan. And and I guess, honestly, I'm going to hold off on doing so for right now. Another question from Zach's Vintage Cards, who asked, what NBA packs do you recommend getting the kids for Christmas? or shortly thereafter, looking for value and not a lottery winner. Well, we're at the point with basketball card manufacturing that the value is going to have to come primarily from the experience because the product, for the most part, is garbage. So out of the stuff that might still be on shelves now, you'll want to pick something that has a nice variety of inserts and parallels and looks nice. 
Personally, I'd stay away from the retail versions of Optic and Prism. And I say that, you know, I've ripped them because I like those products, but um, it's just a horrible value right now. If you can still find Illusions, I think that might be a good one to grab. And then also there are some Walmarts right now that have these repack tins. I think one of them has Lamella Ball on it. They've got different players on them, but they've got different packs inside of them. They're like 25 bucks. I think it's got some Prism and some wildcard packs. That might be a good idea, but... Like I said, I think at this point, the value is going to have to come from the experience. Okay, guys, allow me to interrupt for a moment here to remind you that this show is brought to you in part by ComC.com, your home for buying, selling, and flipping all types trading cards. Their consignment marketplace is home to over 28 million cards across all sports, genres, and eras. With the ComC.com account, you can purchase cards from different sellers and ship them home together later, or immediately reprice them for sale on the ComC marketplace. For more info, you can check them out on social media under the handle at CheckOutMyCards. All right, and a fun question here from Hobbyman underscore Hobbyman. He wrote, I think we all want to know about your NBA 2K experience and how that's going. So I think I posted a picture of me buying the game um, a month or two ago and, and saying, you know, I, I should know better, but here, here, you know, here I am once again. And I would say at this point, 2K is one of those games... I know I really want to enjoy, um, but I won't. And I really enjoyed the series dating all the way back to 2K5 on the original Xbox, aside from the fact that Ben Wallace was on the cover, but which I guess, though, that was on brand for them, though, because, you know, to put a defensive player on there because they were trying to brand themselves as an alternative for NBA Live. So I've owned most of the games from 2K10 forward with the exception of, I think, 19 and 20. I really like the My Player mode. I really like crew games, but they've made the game too much of a grind. Either you have to fork over another $50 in coins, or you have to ride a skateboard around the city for an hour, and I really have no desire to do either one of those. So I wish Reggie Miller would lend his likeness to the game because I like playing with some of the legendary teams, but all my favorite Pacers teams have pretty much been left out. So even though I own the new game right now, I don't play it all that much. I I do play it some, but not all that much. Okay, Raphael, a.k.a. I Collect Wade, asks, should trade value be equal to comps? And this isn't really a yes or no question. I think it depends on how rare a card is and how many comps are out there, and then also what cards are involved in the trade. For instance, let's say one side has one $500 card, and the other side is trying to match that value with five or six different cards. The side with a $500 card should expect a little more than $500 in value in return because they're splintering the value of their asset into a bunch of smaller pieces. But if this is a one-for-one trade and there are plenty of accurate comps out there, then yes, I think it's reasonable for trade value to be equal to comps. The Corner View asks, with the Malice jersey excluded, the, the Artest jersey excluded, what piece of basketball history would you want to own the most? It could be a ball, a ticket, piece of court, netting, jersey, etc. I'm really not much of a memorabilia guy, uh, although I did post a, a nice Wilt Chamberlain piece on my YouTube a, a week or two ago. But overall, I, I really just don't like storing memorabilia. It's just too big and bulky for me. At the same time, though, if I had the option to get anything and I chose a single card, I, I feel like that'd be a bit of a waste. So I'd like to pick something... Pacers related, truth be told, there's really not 
a lot of significant pieces to choose from. I've seen the ABA trophies before in person. Those are all kind of small. Uh, and I wasn't alive to see any of those games. So the biggest Pacers moment for me then would be Reggie Miller shoving Michael Jordan and hitting the game winner in game four of the 98 Eastern Conference Finals. I remember exactly where I was when I was watching. I've watched it countless times since. So I guess I wouldn't mind owning that jersey if I had to choose. Speaking of Pacers, uh, Ryan Mind Cycle Cards wrote, Regarding your Pacer Refractor Binders, what's your favorite year of Topps Chrome? So I would say stylistically my favorite year is 2004. Uh, but if we're factoring in the amount of overall shine too, then I'd say it's probably 2006. And ironically enough, that was one of the years I was away from basketball for a little bit. Family Sports Card Unboxing asks, Why do both 2017 and 2018 Panini Prism Josh Hartz have the rookie card badge? Good question. The simple answer is that Panini screwed up. And it's not the first time, it won't be the last. They messed up several players in 2018, though. Another one was Milos Teodosic. Uh, They gave him a badge when they shouldn't have. And I remember around that time, going to shows and even afterward, and digging through dealers' rookie boxes and finding those cards in there that weren't really rookies, and just kindly letting the dealers know and saying, hey, you know, you might want to take these out. These aren't actually rookies. And they didn't seem very receptive to that idea. They wanted to kind of turn a blind eye to that. Uh, But interestingly enough, on the flip side, they didn't mind throwing SGA in there either, even though his 2018 Prism Rookie card doesn't have the badge like it should. And, you know, there were a few times during the pandemic where that worked to my advantage because you had a lot of dealers that were new to basketball and they'd sort these sets real fast based on the rookie card badge. Uh, I remember grabbing an SGA in a dollar box when they were going for like 40 bucks. And uh, those days are gone now, though. I don't even know what it's worth. I'm sure it's not even close to that. But um, anyway, here we are. So 77 NCAA champs ask, what are a few of the worst things that can happen to the industry? I hope this isn't a case of recency bias, but I think it's two things that are happening right now. And one of them plays directly into the other. The first one is just this idea of having an exclusive license. And I don't even blame that on Panini. That's something the NBA uh, wanted to move towards, and that's something they did. Panini just happened to be the highest bidder. So it's really the NBA that's at fault for that one. I've talked about it on the show many times before, but the exclusive itself wasn't horrible at first, as long as Panini was working hard to court collectors. But that honeymoon phase is long gone, and they got really lazy, There's no legitimate competition to keep them motivated. And on top of that, they've now lost that license to another company that's going to have, yet again, another exclusive. And we're in this weird lame duck period where the transition hasn't fully taken place. So Panini has no interest in adding value to this property because they're just going to hand it off shortly. So they're just mailing it in. And collectors have little choice but to accept it and buy this stuff if they want new products with new cards of their players and teams. So I've said it before, I'll say it again. I absolutely hate the state of basketball card manufacturing right now. Uh, it sucks. Okay, so with that being said, Sports Card Legend uh, is asking about some of the alternatives. And he said, What are your thoughts on unlicensed products like Leaf, President's Choice, Super Glow, Wild Card, and will they withstand a worsening market? 
And I have to say, I like some of the stuff they're doing. You might even see, I've opened a couple boxes of President's Choice on my YouTube. Um, now, Leaf, Super Glow, and Wildcard have already made autos for this new batch of rookies, which I like that as well. That's something Panini really hasn't gotten a good jump on. I thought Super Glow's first release, where they made hard-signed RPAs out of high school and college gamers of a few guys, although it was mainly football, but I, I thought that was really cool especially when they showed that source material on their website. Well, since then, um, the releases after that, they've moved to sticker autos and then some of the unworn or the unassociated relics, which is kind of disappointing. You know, I can't help but to think of them and some of these companies like Collector's Edge in the late 90s. They made a lot of basketball rookie stuff, especially around like 1999. That And it filled a need for a short time, but once the pro stuff became more prevalent, they became less and less important. And once Panini catches up, which I don't know if that will happen, or once Fanatics takes over, that's probably going to kill a couple of these companies off or force them to have to pivot. Now, you know, I like some of the veteran jumbo patches in Leaf and President's Choice. I think Leaf will stick around. I'm not too worried about them. They do a lot more than just basketball. Uh, and their basketball stuff's even unique in its own way. The rest of these companies, though... You know, probably not so much, or they'll just pivot. Like, President's Choice does a lot of hockey stuff, so they'll probably just keep doing that. 4112 Sports Cards asks, How do you navigate the urge to buy modern cards of new rookies on your team with the fact that prices are probably unsustainably high on release year and the fact that you can't, um, the fact you can't buy an associated patch auto? I think that's what he's trying to say here, or that I won't personally. Well, a lot of it comes from collecting for so long because experience is the best teacher. It might not be the exact same scenario, but I have a lot of examples where I got impatient and bought something that I ended up getting stuck with down the road. I just have to keep reminding myself that I'm playing the long game here. All right, so while that question dealt with the lack of new rookie cards, this next question presents the opposite scenario. New York City Hoops collector asks, if all of Panini's 2022-2023 basketball products were to magically come out today, which Benedict Mathern cards are you going hot and heavy after? I'd like to say Prism Gold. That's probably out of my reach, um, especially since I, I think I saw Chris Duarte golds going for like three grand, which just made me laugh. So I'm going to say Optic Gold. I'm going to hold out hope that I have a chance at Optic Gold. I definitely want his Draft Night Auto. Whatever set that ends up in, it seems to bounce around now. And if they end up getting even player-worn patches, I'd like one of the nameplate nobility cards from Immaculate. Otherwise, I'm going to have to wait until Flawless for some game use stuff, and um, I can only imagine how expensive that's going to be. Um, not sure how I'm going to handle that. Not sure how I'm going to react to that, but uh, maybe I should start saving right now. NJ Nets Collector asks, with Fanatics taking over, what is a unique set that they should create? Well, I feel like at this point there's nothing new under the sun. Or if there was something new, it'd be borrowing components from other sets I've enjoyed up to this point. So with them owning all of Top's intellectual history now, I'd really like to see them lean into the retro stuff. And that's not really anything new, though. That would be borrowing even more, and you ask for something unique, so I guess I'll just stop there because... For now, I'm stumped. I don't know what's something new that they could do. Maybe you guys know. Um, you know. Reach out to me. Let me know. Okay. 
Um, the Bouvier asked, if you could play basketball with one player ever in the history of the NBA, who would it be? Would it be Jeff Foster, Ron Artest, Reggie Miller, or someone else? And I can interpret this question in a couple of different ways. I guess it all comes down to context because Paul said, if you could play with, so I'm assuming I'm on their team. If that's the case, I'm probably choosing someone like Steph who can take over on his own because I'm just really not good enough to be with anyone there. Or I could choose someone like Wilt where I could just lob the ball up and, and maybe rack up some assists and some stats in the process. Now, a more entertaining interpretation of that question would be answering what player I would like to play against. And I play to win, so I've got to strategically figure out who is the least skilled player in NBA history. And that's not necessarily relative to their era, by the way. That's the least skilled player relative to 2022 standards because I'm going to transport them to my time. I'm selfish like that. Uh, And I, I think I'm going to have to go pretty far back because I would even say the worst players of the last 50 years are either bigger stronger or faster than me, or all three of of those things. Uh, Like, you know, everyone calls Anthony Bennett a bust, but he's still going to wreck me. Or if you go on Google and you search worst players in NBA history, it's comical because they they list guys like Danny Ferry. Danny Ferry played 13 years in the NBA. He's not the worst NBA player by far. If someone reaches 10 years in the league, they're good, right? So I'm going to set up the parameters here. Like I said, This game will be played in 2022, so sorry, old guys. And I have to find someone from the late 40s or early 50s that is similar to me in weight and height. Now, I don't want to fall into the trap of just picking the shortest guys because chances are some of them are faster than me. Uh, You know, for example, I've stood next to Muggsy Bogues on several occasions, uh, including an awkward photo with Del Curry that I might have to share at some point. But I've stood next to 5'3 Muggsy, And even though he seemed tiny, I have no doubt he could smoke me in a game of one-on-one or even a team game. If if we were matched up, he would just smoke me. So my goal is to find a small, slow player from an underdeveloped era. And I have no way to track speed. And I don't want to assume that they're slow just for certain reasons. And there's no footage of some of the guys that I'm looking up here. So I do have to speculate to some degree. So I went to the league stats for the 1949-1950 season. And I sorted points scored from least to greatest. I started looking for guards that scored little to no points. And that led me to a guy named Jack Parkinson, who was six foot tall, 174 pounds. So that's pretty close to me. I'm 5'10", but around the same weight. And he played four games for the Indianapolis Olympians, and he scored three points. So for those calculating at home, he averaged 0.75 points per game. And I started reading more about him on Wikipedia And I found something that I have to share. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. So they give all of his basketball career, you know, pretty short write-up because he only played a few games here. And the first sentence under the heading um, called Later Life reads as follows. Parkinson returned to Yorktown, Indiana and opened a wholesale plumbing and heating business. So long story short, if I had to choose a player to play against from NBA history, my best shot is probably against a plumber or a fireman. All right, well, there you have it. I want to thank everyone that submitted a question this time around. Um, I had a lot of fun as usual. I usually turn off commenting after I hit the 20 question mark, so if you didn't get yours in in time, don't worry. There will always be more opportunities in the future, or 
For whatever reason you don't want to wait until then, feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under at Wax Museum Podcast or Twitter under the handle at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store. Tag Taco Bell and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.